Welcome back to Love in the Time of COVID, the podcast that provides tools for navigating conflict and deepening relationships as we weather the shelter during the pandemic. I'm Stephanie Matthews. And I'm Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. Thanks to all of our listeners who've been sending in questions. Um, We love hearing your comments and your feedback from the episodes. If you want to leave any questions or comments for Dr. Wakefield, we are at 501-492-9552. You can also email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com and find us on Facebook and Instagram at COVIDLovePod. And just a reminder that we never share names on the show, so your questions are safe with us. Um, Go and find us on iTunes and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, give us that five-star rating so that others can find us as well. Chelsea, welcome back. I hope you've been having a good week and um, I'm excited. Thanks. Yes. Good to be here. I'm excited for our topic today. Um, We're going to be talking about role mates versus soulmates. And, you know, I wanted to start off this conversation by asking you, you know, I'm someone who grew up with this idea that there was the one out there that Mm -hmm. I had to find. And I think um, a lot of us fall into the fairy tale belief that, you know, the perfect soulmate is out there waiting for us. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I too grew up with the idea that there was one perfect, perfect person for me. And um, I, I think it's a beautiful idea um, except the best relationships are built from the ground up. And so I, at this point in life, I really don't believe in the concept of a soulmate, but I do believe in the creation of a soulful relationship. Mm. And what does that look like when we're talking about um, setting our expectations then? Like when we enter a relationship, maybe what our preconceived ideas are versus you know, the actual person in front of us? How do we sort of marry those two competing ideas? I think it's so interesting sometimes. Uh, there are people who date, they're, I call them box checkers. And they, you know, they've got this list of things that they must have in a partner and, and they interview you or, you, you know, to check the boxes and see if they're all lined up. Um, a lot of these profiles on the dating sites are, are like that too. You'll fill in your list of requirements, your list of desires, and then they match you with people. What's confusing about that is that so often uh, when we, and we'll talk a little bit about chemistry here, but you might meet someone who checks all the boxes, but there's just no chemistry. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I think that there's actually a set of underlying Uh, maybe invisible boxes that we have. I think it has to do with our completion story. And then sometimes we'll meet someone and they just start to stir us at a very deep level. And we're so drawn to them because there's something that they're carrying that is magnetic. Either they're carrying a quality that we don't have that we need, or they remind us of something that we've longed for, that we've long forgotten that we've longed for. There's something about the completion story that people feel is that lock and key fit. And um, what's interesting about that is often in those really high chemistry um, attractions with people is they are being drawn to each other, but there's much to learn and much to work out because there's usually 
that initial chemistry, but then there's a boatload of, of other stuff that comes with it. So again, in terms of this perfect one perfect match, I actually, I, I've not found that to be the case. I've found that people who know how to build a relationship, deepen trust, attend to the connection, create that we instead of just the you and the me, those are the folks that can actually get into the level of a soulful relationship. So regardless of how much chemistry or sort of instant connection there is, we're going to have problems, right? And I'm, We're going to have, yes. I mean, in every relationship, there are challenges. Um, sometimes there's outright problems. You know, the, some of the problems, um, John Gottman, who is the big couples researcher, says that, you know, something upwards of, um, 68, 69% of problems that couples have are just based in differences of personality or things that are actually not resolvable. So you'll have, you know, one person who's incredibly organized and um, a neat nick and they like to put everything in its place and then they'll end up marrying this fantastically wonderful, um, soulful chemistry person who is just has ADD and they just leave trails of chaos wherever they go and they are always losing things and they're going to have to figure out how to manage that tension because we're actually talking about differences in brain wiring when we're talking about somebody who has ADD it's not, they're not doing it on purpose but those are the kinds of problems that that people run into who love each other deeply um and the, you and I were talking about what is that Daniel Weil quote that you mm -hmm. that you found about couples? Yes, Daniel Weil said that while choosing to be that choosing to be in a relationship means quote choosing a particular set of unsolvable problems. Yes, and every relationship you get into, there will be a set of unsolvable problems, which is just really based in our uniqueness. And how when you put two unique individuals together, there's going to be pieces of that that just don't fit. Mm. You know, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, something we've been discussing leading up to this recording and emailing about, which is sort of this concept of, you know, the role mate, someone who meets our needs. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've read The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner, but I'm currently going through that book. Um. And she talks, and I'm not all the way through, but I'm about the halfway point. And a lot of what she talks about is how women especially are sort of wired to put others' needs first and not even mm -hmm. be able to truly get in touch with or articulate their own needs. And often, you know, are looking for the other person, whether it's in their, you know, sort of their parent-child relationships or with their partner there's this assumption that this person, this other person will fill, fulfill their needs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like just, you know, going through my own experience of having this, you know, preconceived notion of a, a soulmate, an instant connection who would be forever attuned to my every need. And then having the crashing reality, like that's not how adult relationships work. You know, it really forces, I think, each person, at least in our experience, to like really get in tune with their own needs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think that women are still largely socialized to accommodate to a partner and to others to be sensitive, um, to reference them. And it causes a lot of problems for us because it does make us angry. Because if you have an assumption that if you meet somebody else's needs, it'll be reciprocal. 
somehow they'll be attuned to you and you'll at some point get something back from that and then it doesn't happen. That is a recipe for resentment and anger or depression. Mm -hmm. um, I love Harriet Lerner. She's written a whole string of dance of books, the dance mm. of anger, the dance of intimacy, the dance of deception. Um, she keeps writing dance of books. Um, <laughs> it's working. Yes, it's <laughs> working. The formula is working. <laughs> yes. um, but, you know, it. that's part of the inner work of actually becoming an adult in relationship. And that's what we have to emphasize is that we've got to become an adult in a relationship. Even just this morning, I was doing a session with a couple and, and the mythology of the one that if my partner really knew and loved me, they would know what I need. They would respond mm -hmm. in the way that I most long for. And since they're not doing that, there must be a lack of love or a lack of security. And again, so often we end up pairing with someone who has a different attachment pattern that we do. So one person will be a little bit insecure and anxious and kind of always referencing the other and the other one will be very um, well, almost kind of seemingly self-absorbed, just sort of contained and able to regulate themselves and not needing a whole lot and not necessarily referencing the other person unless that other person is clear about what their wants and needs are. So there's so much information that has to go back and forth between partners in the context of curiosity, one of those really key relationship capacities of just really saying, let me understand you over there in your universe in this separate subjective world that you live in. Help me understand who you are, how you operate, and tell me how to love you best. Tell me how to love you so that you really feel loved. And then when we, when we exchange that information, and if there is the general principle and foundation of reciprocity, which is really important in a relationship today, is reciprocity that natural generosity of not abandoning who we are, but responding to the other person, uh, that mm. starts to happen. And then we're referencing the other person, but not giving up who we are. And that's such a delicate balance. Mm -hmm. And you know, I feel like there's just a lot of pressure on sort of modern relationships. And this is something that, you know, we've talked about in your relationship enrichment course and you and I have emailed about as we've done this podcast series and I want to quote something you sent me from Esther Perel when she talks about how we want our partners to be what the whole village once provided to be yes. best friend confidant passionate love intellectual equal and how you know relationships based on need meeting are inherently unstable and she mm -hmm. says compatibility, compatibility is wonderful, but it's not everything. Relationships based on journey and growth and shared experiences rather than need meeting are much more successful. And this mm -hmm. is something you, you know, talk about all the time is this need to develop capacities and to really build a relationship together. Can yes. you just talk about how, you know, where's a, a starting point for couples who maybe have been trapped in this cycle of, you know, just wanting each other to respond to their needs? And now they have to build this adult relationship. I always tell people that you have to begin within. You've got to, whenever you are upset or activated, the, the, the phrase is activation is invitation. 
And it's invitation to begin within, to look inside and ask ourselves, why is this upsetting me so much? What is it touching into? And I like to do somatic tracking where I'm not trying to figure out what it's touching into, but I'm actually, I'm either doing this with myself or I'm facilitating others in locating how that upset is sitting in their bodies and then tuning into that sensation and allowing themselves to go back along the time track and to find earlier instances when they had the same sensations going on. And I find that that just uncovers a gold mine of connecting the dots when we actually track sensations rather than trying to figure things out because all of this stuff is stored in the body. It's stored in the neural networks of our brains and when that little file cabinet in the brain opens and downloads, it sends stress chemicals or pleasure chemicals into the body. And those associations can really open up a lot of insights. So, you know, I might be in a situation where my partner is not responding to me ideally. And then if I sit down and I say, now, why am I so upset that they answered this or didn't affirm me in this way or didn't respond to me or didn't call me back or whatever it was that they didn't do uh, or that they did do and really look at what it was like to be a little kid in a similar situation mm -hmm. and little kids again we just have to remember that when we were little kids we had no voice no choice no power no insight Often we couldn't articulate what was going on with us and the big people were in control. So we have those nested little kids in us, in the nesting doll of, dolls of ourselves. And when they get stirred up, they can really wreak a lot of havoc in our sense of well-being. And then that past flows into the present. And we think that we're upset with the partner, but we're not just upset with them. We're actually upset with our parents and every time it ever happened mm -hmm. growing up. So the whole domino effect is just tumbling forward into our nervous systems. So we have to begin within. And then when we get some clarity, if the relationship is set up about the journey instead of need meeting, and there's some good research about that, 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 in picking a partner, and I wish people knew this going in, you don't just pick someone that you think is adorable and that meets your current needs at the age of 23 or 30 or 50 or whatever it is where you've got the boxes checked. You wanna pair up with somebody who is willing to continue to discover and grow. That is almost the most important component in partnering with someone. And of course, you want to, you know, enjoy being around them and like the way they smell and, <laughs> you know, have enjoyable activities and a little bit of the same philosophy of life. But that desire to continue to discover each other and to continue to do your personal work and to grow together is so incredibly important. And when you have that with somebody, you can almost overcome anything that is facing you. Really significant problems can be overcome. And th that's the capacity piece of the commitment where you're starting to develop curiosity and courage and you're discovering each other and you're exchanging information and you're not taking things personally when the, the other person says, this is something that I've always really wanted to do or this is really, really important to me or I have this opinion and you hear the, the opinion and you think, oh my gosh, I've married a such and such. Um, <laughs> 
because that happens with people where they'll marry someone and then suddenly that person will voice an opinion and you'll think, I couldn't possibly be married to somebody who thinks that way. <laughs> but they do, and you're already in. Um, and you've got to figure out how to hold this tension of, of, you know, and to move to curiosity. Tell me more about how it is you think that way or feel that way. Um, my, my husband hates the gecko. <laughs> you know, the... <laughs> that insurance commercial. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so fascinated because every time the gecko comes on, he has a fit. <laughs> so <laughs> the other night I decided I was going to just really be curious. And we had this really interesting conversation because I was saying, so tell me more about why you hate the gecko. <laughs> and so he started to go more and more deeply into what he doesn't like about his, all these projections onto the gecko. Like the gecko was, <laughs> Um, this just sort of arrogant uh, person who was looking down on everybody and it was all because of the accent and I just kept asking more and more questions and because I was really legitimately curious uh, we had this really interesting conversation which essentially got into a series of associations and something that I love about my husband which is that he really wants people to treat other people with respect and not to talk down on them or to be um, contemptuous mm -hmm. and there's something about the tone of the gecko that just sets that all <laughs> off for him so it was a really interesting conversation but prior to the other night it just irritated me it was kind of like oh be quiet you know who cares about the gecko <laughs> so, did you have a good laugh over all of this too that's well we, we did we did and and after a while, he, he actually got to this place where he got curious himself about how much reaction he was having about the gecko. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, but that's just an example of how it's been irritating for me, I think probably for about 10 years, because <laughs> he's hated the gecko that long. And I would just dismiss it and think, oh, that's just so ridiculous. But the other night, I just thought, you know, I, I should learn a little about this, and I'll learn a little bit more about my husband. So oh, <laughs> there's that curiosity yeah. capacity there. you're always telling us about. I know, I know. We have to just keep practicing it and going deeper. Yes. And, you know, so we've been together for 30 years and we're still discovering things about each other, mm -hmm. um, which is what, to me, that's what keeps the relationship interesting. Mm -hmm. If you don't just assume you know everything about the person you're living with, there's more to discover, not only to discover, but people grow and change. They mm -hmm. evolve. They heal from things. They change their opinions. They discover new things about themselves, which shifts their world. And if you just think you're with the same person you were with 10 years ago or even yesterday, it may not be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will say, you know, in... I talk about my and Gerard's relationship a little bit on the podcast, but, you know, we have been married five years and this year in particular, you know, we're going through some, we're each having to go through some personal growth. Um, and it's really interesting because I look back and I think this is not like, we're not the same people we married, you know, and right. we sort of have a chance. I guess we can look at it <laughs> two ways. You can be like, Oh, that's not the person I married and just kind of be over it. Or, you know, I, we talk about it like we have the chance to kind of figure out what this looks like moving forward because we're not, yes. you know, we're not the same. And, um, you know, our worlds have been kind of turned on their heads in a way. And so, 
you know, being with someone who is really committed to doing the self work definitely makes that easier for someone like me who sort of, you know, gets a little fearful of change. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think having just being with a partner who is willing to grow and understand that it's a process. And well, I would say you're a lucky woman. I, I do agree with you. I think so, too. <laughs> yes. I do think so, too. Because, you know, I would rather someone just tell me, like, you're at point A. Here's how to get to point B. Okay. And you're done. <laughs> like, just do that. Do the steps and you're done. And, you know, having to embrace the whole process of changing and evolving and, you know, is not um, how I prefer to operate in the world. But it's a good it's thing. All it's about definitely finding, makes life interesting. Yep. And it's all about finding your sea legs on the deck of a moving ship. Mm. Because that ship is going to always be moving. And if you, Mm -hmm. you know, once you find your balance and say, okay, you know, we're listing a little left, listing a little choppy waters today. Oh, sailing smooth. Um, You know, you'll be okay because there'll be periods of smooth sailing and there's going to be periods when it's stormy and you just have to learn to move with the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it'll be, it'll be a wonderful journey because, um, It'll always be interesting and always, you'll never be bored. Yes. Oh, good. Good. And, and, you know, in terms of people who really need security, that the whole point is that, you know, the the deck of the moving ship, it's moving. But if you're both in the ship together, in the relationship, and you're, you're committed to being together and continuing to watch it unfold, that's a tremendous security. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, the people that we marry, we marry them when we're so in love and we've got that, we're kind of drunk on dopamine and mm-hmm. the idea that we hit this place where we look at this person and we say, you are not who I thought you were or you're not what I expected. That happens in every relationship because we just can't possibly see the full scope of who it is that we're engaging with. Mm-hmm. And the if we just had more information about how this is normal, if that was out in the culture, people wouldn't get so scared. They would just see it as a developmental passage in the relationship where now we actually get to start the real relationship, not based on idealization, but what do we want to build together? And what is the work that each of us has to do so that we're not loading our baggage into the relationship, but we're just actually co-creating something. And again, you know, we'll always have our areas of sensitivity. Um, Those don't go away. But even in just learning um, the conversation of when you get captured by a complex or whatever it is that happens for you when you're not in the best shape, how is it most helpful? How can I relate to you in a way that is most helpful in those moments? And to have that conversation when you're calm and not stuck in the dynamic. And that way, it, it, what you're doing is when your partner falls in the ditch, you're helping them out. When you fall in, they're helping you out. And when you both fall in, you've got a strategy for what are we going to do when we're both in really bad shape. Mm-hmm. So those conversations have to happen when you're calm. Yes. And I want to talk to you about, I'm going to quote you back to you. You shared a quote from okay. your upcoming book, The Labyrinth of Love With Me. Um, as we talk about sort of co-creating, because like you said, that is not the way we talk about relationships in this culture. Mm-hmm. So I want to read this quote to you and then have you answer your own question. <laughs> okay. Half-hearted lovers don't make good life partners. 
there are just too many challenges to overcome along the path of love. In order to confidently invest in building a life together, we have to have a sense of faith and trust that both of us are all in. The necessity of commitment is obvious, but committed, committed to what? Mm-hmm. So the question so, is committed to what? Mm-hmm. As I we think, talk about co-creating. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we commit to a person, but we have to be committed to the process. We have to be committed to doing our own work, committed to the process of co-creation. We're also committed to the person, but not based on who you are today or who I think you are. But that's why the process, committed to the relationship, committed to the creation of that we, is so incredibly important. Because as we hit those places of disillusionment, we have to continue to grapple and struggle with those areas of tension, disillusionment, disappointment. Um, And fear is the greatest enemy of love. So that's where the courage capacity comes in, of saying, we're in a rough patch or I don't really understand you at all in, in what you're de- how you're dealing with this, how you're dealing with me um, or what you're going through, how you're thinking about this, why it's so important to me. I don't understand you at all, but I'm going to stay engaged so that I can seek to understand and so that the two of us can work it out. And, you know, a lot of people use the word compromise, but And compromise is okay, but oftentimes if you will stay in the tension of the conversation of I want this and you want that and continue to look at what needs those desires are filling or where it's being driven for from as an incomplete in an earlier life, a lot of times what happens is the way that the two of you are holding that conflict changes. That's different than a compromise. It's actually moving to a higher place with it where you're holding it differently. And as you view it differently and hold it differently and it echoes into different things in each of you, sometimes you can come to a mutual solution that is not a compromise, but it's something that never even occurred to you when you were in the conflict. Mm. And that goes That has to do with growth. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And something that you talk about is this concept of encounter that's Mm -hmm. not based on meeting needs. Can you talk a little bit more about the power of encounter? Well, encounter is so incredibly powerful. And a lot of times people will have brief moments of this when they're in the early stages of love. And it actually causes them to really fall head over heels. It's this is the experience where you feel, um, you really get me at a deep level. You really see me, you really hear me, and you really get me. And it's different than an idealized projection when you're going out with someone and they think you're just wonderful and so you feel wonderful about yourself because they think you're wonderful and you think they're wonderful and then they, that mutual admiration society. This is different (laughs) than those exchanged projections. This is when you're listening, where you've let go of all your agenda all of your needs, all of your um, preconceived ideas about the person. And you're just really listening deeply beyond the words, into the intentions, into, into that you've crossed the bridge into their world and you're trying to see out of their eyes and they sense it. 
And when they cross the bridge over into your world and try to see out of your eyes and you sense that they're really doing that, that is a deep encounter. And there was a philosopher in the earliest, uh, the early 20th, 20th century. His name was Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R. He was an Austrian philosopher. And he talked about the difference between an I-thou relationship and an I-it relationship. An I-it relationship is transactional. It's the way that we actually relate to most people in our lives as role mates. You know, I've got my job, you've got your job, are you doing your job, I'm doing my job. Is there reciprocity in terms of, you know, I'm not giving more than you are, you're not giving more than I am. We're fulfilling our responsibilities. Those are all I-it relationships, and we have to have them because there are things to take care of and do in life. We have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But the I-thou relationship is that encounter, that soul-to-soul encounter. And those are extremely uh, special. And when I'm sitting with a couple and they begin to fall deeply into each other's eyes and really listen to each other and really exchange some deep information that they haven't ever been able to exchange before, I always feel like I am in the presence of a miracle. Mm -hmm. And it's a sacred experience. I just sit back and stay out of the way and just let them go there because it is so profound. And the feeling in the room of awe and wonder and depth and timelessness is palpable. It is such a beautiful thing to witness and we can only get there when we set our agendas aside and we realize that we have to just, it's like piercing the veil. We've got to somehow get through our projections into actually seeing that other person as they really, really are in their deepest essence. So, and again, we can't live there, but mm -hmm. couples who have that experience periodically with each other, they that's such a beautiful shared experience. It creates a depth of a bond that is deeply valued and really holds a couple together uh, in other times when they're in the more necessities of the transactions of life and the responsibilities and the schedules and the can you please pick up the dry cleaning and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And are those moments of encounter, are they sort of critical to this chemistry piece that you're talking about, you know, like that we most of us experience in the beginning and then it kind of wanes as we become role mates and then you know we have these brief flashes of chemistry sometimes or passion or whatever you want to call it is that so it's difficult it's really difficult to differentiate between the shared projections idealized projections that you know the two of you are exchanging where you're projecting out how this person is your dream come true mm -hmm. and they're projecting onto you that you are their dream come true and you're both high on the brain chemicals that can feel like an encounter but it's actually kind of a folly ado it's it's sort of a shared insanity um, these kinds of encounters have a more grounded feel to them. And yes, they can happen at the beginning of a relationship. Absolutely. Um, but we just really need to, there's so much mystery at the beginning of a relationship, including that experience of chemistry, which might be so many things, including, um, 
something that Freud called a repetition compulsion, which means that, let's say I'm going out with somebody who is, um, oh, an example would be they're kind of hard to get. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I grew up with a, a sort of a distant father that whenever I could capture his attention and get him to spend some special time with me, I was on top of the world. But I spent a great deal of time and energy trying to capture my father's attention. And all of a sudden, there's this handsome, charming, intelligent, wonderful guy who occasionally I can capture his attention. And he thinks, you know, he really kind of tunes in on me and gives me some special time. But then he kind of disappears. And every time I capture him, I'm feeling, um, oh, my gosh, the chemistry here. But actually what that is is that repetition of the longing to capture the male attention. And I, you know, sometimes people will will do this. They'll become completely um, obsessed with that person and try to capture them. And then if they actually get into a committed relationship, now what they're going to be living in is um, these alterations of I have your attention, I don't have your attention, and when I don't, I'm feeling like I'm abandoned and sad like I used to feel, but now I've got your attention. Now what will it take to get your attention? And there's so much preoccupation with how to sustain that that it becomes a really unpleasant experience over time. Mm. Uh, And what Freud was talking about when he was talking about repetition compulsions was the idea that we could repeat an experience that echoes into our past and have it turn out differently. And that almost never happens. It almost always plays out exactly the same because we're picking a person who carries the same personality dimensions as that difficult person in our past. So that can create a lot of chemistry in terms of, oh my gosh, I've got to have this person. I feel so excited when they're giving me their attention. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that can really ever go deep into that secure attachment. Um, encounters have a magical feel when it's an I-thou encounter, but there is a settledness about it. There's a calm. I mean, it's, it, it's awe, awe-inspiring, but there's a groundedness about it. And in terms of whether or not I should be with this person for the rest of my life, sometimes you will have an encounter with somebody in, I don't know, you go to a seminar or something and you get into a deep conversation with them uh, after the seminar and it's a really deep encounter. But just because we have an encounter with somebody doesn't mean we should build a life with them. And I'm going to say that again because it's really, you know, the difference being able to really encounter somebody at a deep soul level and being able to actually transition out of that I-thou connection into the transactional analysis of building a life with someone, those are important things to evaluate because you can't always build a life with someone who will connect with you at that deep soul level. So, you know, you, there, there has to be a mix of these two. I think that um, also some people are really terrified of being seen at that level. It really frightens them. And so you have to want to be seen at that level um, to really be open enough to have that happen and to feel okay about it. That goes back to our discussions about attachment. People who feel very self-protective uh, don't always want people to, to come into their world and see them because they don't trust that. So um, 
It's complicated, isn't it? Yes, it's it's very complicated. Um, but it's also, you know, this also is very hopeful. I mean, it's just, I think you're getting to the root of, not getting to the root, that's not what I want to say really. It's like you're just showing us kind of the lies that we've believed about what relationships should be, you know, like if we just listen to like what pop culture says about relationships or just maybe what we've even learned in our own families that that's and every love song on the radio. Yes, yes, yes. Especially the country love songs. (laughs) They're always crying in the beer. (laughs) Yeah, so I just think it's great that, you know, you can guide us to, like, through a process that's much more, you know, healthy and real and um, life-giving than, than staying stuck in these cycles that many of us probably do. You know, and, of course, you want to be with somebody that you have a connection with and that you, you like the way that they they look. I, I actually think that the way somebody smells is incredibly important it's very important to your sex life Mm -hmm. because if you don't like the way somebody smells you don't want to get that close to them so it's very very important just the way their skin smells you know when you nuzzle Mm -hmm. into their neck you've got to make sure that works for you Mm -hmm. um but the and shared activities common interests the all of that is important but it's not the whole picture that would be, if you just have somebody that you become an activity mate with you, you know, you could, we like to go to, we like to ski together, we like to hike, we like to bird watch, we like to cook, we like to, we have similar tastes in how to decorate our houses. Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things are all important, but they're not the core of the relationship. Mm-hmm. They're not the kinds of things that you can build a long-term life on, especially, for instance, when you, have, when you add kids to the picture. So let's say that your entire relationship was built on hiking together. And now you've got a couple of kids and you're only going to hike, you know, you've got little kids and you're not doing any hiking. Or maybe you can get out twice a year, but you're trying to build a life together and raise little kids. It's a completely different set of circumstances than what originally established the connection. Mm, Yeah, I would imagine that would really throw everything on its head Mm -hmm. for sure. And I think maybe this is a good place to think about, um, because like I said earlier before we started recording, I could ask you questions for another two hours easily, but um, maybe this is a good point to talk about or to, you know, tease a future episode where we talk about how to know if your relationship is sustainable or not. You know, when, when do you stay? When do you go? Um, that would be a great episode and it would be an episode where we could talk about dating mm-hmm. and really the big question of should I stay or should I go because that uh, I, you know I always talk about relationships as if they're always resolvable and I'm very hopeful about relationships but there are some times when it's best to leave when it's mm-hmm. really you know this two of you sit down and you just figure out this is not going to work we cannot build a life together so that's a hard decision. We can certainly talk about that in a future episode. And I, I would love it if some of our listeners would call in and ask some questions about this. Um, yes. is, it, is what I'm going through resolvable? Under words, what circumstances is it resolvable? Things like that. Okay, perfect. Yes, let's get those calls and emails in. I'll go ahead and leave our listeners with that number one more time. It's 501-492-9552 
or you can email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com. And we will get to your questions on our next episode. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for talking us through this rollmate versus soulmate topic today. As always, I feel like I get therapy just by doing this podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for just lending us your time and your advice. Oh, you're welcome.